I'm a youth leader here. Um, I'm going to read the passage. Verse 12, and the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, he says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech and life and love and in purity. And folks, that is exactly what your students are doing this morning. They are leading us in worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are the future leaders of our church. They truly are. And so pray for them, encourage them, and equip them because they will one day be leading the church. And so we want to encourage them and their time, their talent, and their treasures to use for God's glory. So I thank you for your support for them, and I thank you for all the parents who got them up early this morning. Um, but as we begin this morning, um, as we jump into the sermon, I'm going to open and I'm also going to close our time with this question. This is the question. Who or what is the object of your faith? Take a moment to think about that. Who or what is the object of your faith? If someone were to write a biography about your life, could the readers of your biography, could they easily discern the answer to this question, who or what is the object of your faith? Could they clearly see that Jesus is the consistent object of your faith? Could they see that? Well, once there was a young man named George who was born in Germany on September 27, 1805. And this young man, having grown up in a poor family, simply desiring to be a somebody, he picks himself up by his own bootstraps and he stole what he could, he lied when it profited him, and he swindled friends and family out of money when opportunities arose. And he did this all for the purpose of self-advancement and self-improvement. George began stealing from his father at the age of 10, and he was also in prison by the age of 16 for stealing. So George spent about a month in jail, and then he was brought back home to his parents. George was accepted back into his family so long as he promised to be a better son. And yes, George, he did get a whooping from his father when he came home. But George, craving his father's acceptance, he strove to be a better son. And so what did he do? He enrolled in school and he studied hard at the Cathedral Classical School in Halberstadt. And he lived outwardly a more moralistically um, lifestyle, doing more good and being more faithful to what his dad asked him to do. And George's father, he was pleased with his son's outward progress. And George's father hoped that his son would one day become a clergyman, not that he might serve God, but in order that he should have a comfortable and noteworthy life. George quietly contemplated this attractive desire from his father, but George soon found himself breaking his resolution to become a better son. And that thought of becoming a minister just went out of his head. His behavior grew worse as the days went on, and all of George's attempts to reform himself, to be this better son, they began to fail one by one. So what did George do? He picked himself up by his own bootstraps again, and he attempted to enter into the University of Hull, which was, which was the famous university founded in 1694 by Frederick III of Brandenburg, who later became the king of Prussia. 
And it was there at the university that George would learn about pietistic theology and common church practices. And his desire for self-reform and self-advancement, you know, to be the better son. They grew at this university because this university, they were rigid in their moralistic teachings. They taught, you got to be better, you can do better, and you've got the power to do that. You just have to do more of this, this, and this. And that's what he learned. See, George felt at home within the first few months that he was at Hall because he was gaining the exact tools he needed to be successful, right? Because that's what he thought to be successful was to be a good person, to do better, to be better. And he thought he could do it by himself. He was a more moral, a more religious, and a more respected man than before. And this is, he, this is what he thought he wanted. That is until all the religious and moralistic training began to fail him once again. See, George began to mishandle his money, to spend it unwisely, and instead of turning to God, he looked to himself for all the answers, for provision. And George began to be tempted to steal and swindle money from others again because that's what he knew how to do, to take care of himself. George felt utterly miserable and worn out by his constant unsuccessful attempts to improve himself and his status. His own despair and personal resolve to better himself, it got so bad at this point in his life that he drank 10 pints of beer and one afternoon with a group of some old friends from his school solely for the purpose of getting them drunk so that they would agree with him to travel across Europe. And what George did is he took their money, their traveling money, so that George could pay for their tickets. And then he used that for himself and his own desires. See, George was trying to take care of himself by his own means, by his own power. So George was caught in a vicious cycle, and he faith placed in himself to try to bring real powerful change, to be the somebody, to try to be the son that pleased his father. And you know where that got him? Nowhere. Let me ask you, can any of you identify with George at all? Can you identify with him, even in the slightest? Do you ever try to pick up yourself by your own bootstraps? The reason I ask you all this question, because a passage we're going to be looking at this morning is asking us this question in our text. But before we get to our text and we learn a little bit about the context surrounding our passage, let's open up in some prayer because we need to recognize that God is the one with power, not us. Let's go to Lord and pray. Jesus, we are sinners in need of your saving grace. Forgive us for looking to ourselves for the strength to change our own lives, our own hearts, or our own circumstances. Forgive us for looking to ourselves for provision. Lord, grant us powerful faith in you. All too often, Lord, we, we place our faith in ourselves and in the things of this world, and we need to repent of these things. Lord, draw us to yourself and help us to place you back on the throne of our lives. Be merciful to us and awaken our hearts to love you, Lord. We pray this in your name, and the church says, amen. Well, I'm going to give you guys some context um, 
So uh, as we do that, as we dive into Matthew 21, uh, chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, let's take a look and see what our, our author, Matthew, is trying to say. So let's learn about this context by asking two questions. First, well, what has happened before our passage, right? What's come before it? And secondly, why is it important? Well, our author Matthew has told us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And that's where Jesus rode in on a donkey, and that's where the crowd celebrated right, his arrival by saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then we see Jesus enter into the temple in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. And here, Jesus drives out all the money changers and folks selling animals to be sacrificed at the temple. And as we heard from Dr. Dave last Sunday, Jesus isn't just throwing a hissy fit because folks are selling animals or exchanging their currency at his temple because that was actually common practice outside the temple wall. No, Jesus was righteously angry because these folks were taking up so much space inside the temple that it would have been incredibly difficult for folks to actually worship their God. Jesus was righteously angry because these folks doing business inside the temple courts, they were making a mockery of the process in which God had prescribed for the Jews and Gentiles to worship him. You see, these money changers and folks selling animals for worship they turned the sacrificial worship of God into a for-profit mechanical process as if the temple was a one-stop shop for all your cleansing needs. Instead of folks intentionally bringing their best that God had provided for them and loving God with what God had given them and bringing their best, their first fruits to God, these businessmen, they took up space. They made it hard for folks to worship God, and then gave folks a quick and easy way out. You see, this context is important because as Jesus is turning table overs and clearing all these businessmen out, he's revealing that there is going to be judgment that is going to come upon Israel. He previously said in Matthew 15, he said, these hypocrites, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they are far from me. They cry out, Hosanna, son of David, right? One day. And then the next, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. So the question stands, who or what is Israel's object of faith? Is it the Mosaic law? Is it their own moral ability to appease God? Or is it, in fact, Jesus Christ? Who do they place their faith in? Well, we're going to see how Jesus addresses this underlying question for us in our first point, titled Judgment for Misguided Faith. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 21. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Please read along with me. Verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he, being Jesus, became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside... He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Let's address the obvious question from just reading these verses. 
Is Jesus just frustrated at this fig tree because he's hungry and there's no fruit on it? Mitch, like maybe you or I would be, like if we come home from a long day at work and there's absolutely nothing in the fridge. No, Jesus isn't petty like that. Jesus is taking the opportunity to teach the disciples an object lesson about the consequences of who or what they put their faith in. For Jesus is depicting with a miracle the wrath of God that will come upon those who worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. This cursing of the fig tree is a sign of judgment for Israel and for all who follow the doctrine of sola bootstrapsa, which is simply picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. This miracle account of Jesus judging Israel by cursing the fig tree occurs over the span of two days. And we know this because the Gospel of Mark Mark gives us a chronological account of this miracle story in Mark 11, whereas our author, Matthew, provides for us a topical account of this story. Let me give you the timetable of this teaching on judgment, faith, and prayer, and then I'm going to explain why Matthew gives us his topical version of this miracle account. So first, Mark provides for us details that let us know that Jesus leaves the temple and Jerusalem, right where he was cleansing the temple, for Bethany on Sunday night. And on Monday, on Monday morning of Passover week, Jesus leaves Bethany for Jerusalem because Jesus was resting in Bethany. And on his way back to Jerusalem, Jesus gets hungry. He sees the fig tree and he curses it for bearing no fruit. Then on Monday evening, Jesus leaves Jerusalem for Bethany to get rest. Then the next morning, Tuesday, as Jesus is leaving Bethany for Jerusalem again, that is when the disciples, that's when they see the fig tree, that it has fully, fully withered, and that's when they ask Jesus a misguided question. Now you may be thinking, well, why doesn't Matthew give us this detailed play-by-play account like Mark does? Well, it's because Matthew's objective is a little different from Mark's. Mark the author of his gospel, seeks to record this powerful miracle as it happened in detail, whereas our author, Matthew, wants his Jewish audience to see this miracle and the theological teaching behind it. That's why Matthew shortens the story only to focus on the immediacy of the withering of the tree. He wants to show you a picture of the quickness of God's judgment against all those who put their faith in something other than himself. And that was also for Israel. He's revealing that the object of Israel's faith is not Jesus, and that is why judgment is going to come upon them. That is what he's doing here in this miracle account. Now I want you to stop for just a minute. Think about this question. Jesus has performed numerous miracles, right? He's healed blind. He's healed the sick. He's raised some from the dead. He's fed thousands and thousands But has he cursed anything before this? Has he cursed anything before this? No, Jesus has just done something extraordinary here in our passage. He has just cursed one of his creations. And he curses the fig tree and calls on it to never again bear fruit. You see, the destruction for this fig tree, it's permanent. There is no coming back whatsoever for it. Church, do you see how your God deals with people who place their faith in anything other than himself? 
This is a stern warning for all of us. If our lips praise Jesus, but our hearts are far from him, meaning if any of us, we're just going through the Christian motions, right? We're going to church, we're going to small group, we're saying the right things, we're trying to be moral people. If that's as far as it goes for you and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and love him, then we are in grave danger. And this warning is for us if your object of your faith is not in Jesus Christ. This question about who or what is the object of your faith, it's incredibly important because there are eternal consequences attached to it. If Jesus is the object of your faith, then ask yourself, if, is he the consistent object of my faith? Do you love him and call out to him regularly? Or do you only rely upon him when times get tough? When you experience times of trouble? You know how you begin to think about this? It starts by asking yourself a, a few questions. I'm going to read off some questions to help us think through this. Is Jesus the object of our faith? And is he the consistent object of our faith? Ask yourself this. Am I bearing fruit for Jesus? Do I long to be more like him? Do I want to have his character? Am I truly changing? Am I becoming more loving? Am I filled with joy even in difficult circumstances? Am I experiencing more peace in my life? Am I becoming more patient? Am I becoming more kind? Do I truly desire to do actually good to other people, including my neighbors and coworkers? Am I more faithful to God, my spouse, my children, or my work now as a believer in Jesus Christ? Am I gentle with my husband, with my wife, or with my children? Am I gaining self-control sexually with my eating habits or with my spending? Because, church, these are the fruit of the Spirit and as Christians, we should be growing fruit, right? Because we're connected to the source of all love, all joy, all peace, all patience, all goodness, all kindness, all gentleness, and all self-control. If Christ is the object of your faith, then there should be some fruit. You know, maybe it's not a lot right now. Maybe it's not a lot, but there should be some. And let me encourage you, brother or sister, if you are not there yet and you are struggling, there is grace to be found in Jesus Christ because he accepts all people who call out for his name for help. That is why the cross is so important. That is why Jesus, as he nears the end, we spend so much time as Christians talking about the cross and what Jesus has done. Because Jesus had to die to appease God's righteous wrath that we have earned by our sin so that we could come to God anytime you call on his name and you can come to him with all of your imperfections. And so let me encourage you to talk to the Lord. Ask him to bring true change to your heart because the alternative option, picking yourself by your own bootstraps, let me tell you, it's going to get you nowhere like it got George. Church, the fig tree showed no sign of any fruit, just like Israel and just like our friend George. And it's because moral effort and religious practices devoid of putting Jesus on the throne and focusing on him 
will bring no fruit in your life, no real lasting change. For Israel, the object of their faith, it was themselves and following the Mosaic law by their own power and own strength. For George, the object of his faith was himself, trying to pick himself up by his own bootstraps, by his own power, and by his own strength. And Jesus warns them and all of us here, if we place ourselves on the throne of God and try to get through this life on our own power and in our own strength, then be warned, we may wither and die like the fig tree. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been withering spiritually for quite some time. Maybe this this is a wake-up call to turn to the Lord and cry out for his help. You know what the good news is? Is if that's where you're at this morning, Jesus is not going to turn you away. If you ask for his help, he will give it to you. If you turn and repent and you say, Lord, you have the power. You can bring real change, real love and joy in my life. And I need that. He can do it because you can't. There is grace to be found in Jesus if we turn to him for help. And folks, this next point is a perfect example of God extending his grace to those who call out to his name for help and put him on the throne of their lives. Point two is titled, The Power of Faith and Prayer. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 20 through 22. So please follow along and read with me as we look at verses 20 through 22. When the disciples saw it, being the fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Isn't it interesting that the disciples didn't ask Jesus why he cursed the fig tree. Instead, they asked, Jesus, how did you curse the fig tree? They were more concerned with how Jesus did this miracle rather than why he did it. And the disciples' question of how is misguided. But Jesus turns their question into something useful. Because if the disciples want to know how to gain power to do such things like Jesus, cursing the fig tree and it withering, then Jesus is going to tell them. And this is what Jesus says. He says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You see, Jesus responds to the disciples. His response is to have deep faith in God. The kind of faith that trusts him no matter the circumstance, the kind of faith that believes in the supernatural acts of God, including all those miracles, the kind of faith that believes in God's word, the kind of faith that is obedient to his word, and the kind of faith that expects God to answer prayer in his time and in his ways. For if the disciples completely trust Jesus, Jesus, in following his words, then guess what? They will have the power to say to this mountain, which is probably the Mount of Olives, which they may be standing on, go into the sea. And the sea they're probably looking at is the Dead Sea. So Jesus is giving them 
an illustration of this mountain. If you pray and you have faith, it could go into this sea. That's what he's saying. Isn't that simply amazing? That Jesus would say this to the disciples. That he would claim this. You see, Jesus, what he's doing here, he's revealing the source of true power. And it's faith in God and his word, not faith in ourselves, our power, and our strength, or any other religious practices. It's faith in God that moves mountains in accordance with his will. Real power comes from faith in God, and if prayer is the vehicle to move the mountain, then faith is the source to power that vehicle. Don't you see who or what you place your faith in? It actually matters. It really does. If the object of your faith isn't Jesus, then you cannot possibly have the kind of faith Jesus is talking here about here that can move mountains. It's not possible. Because you're not, connect, you're not connected to the power source. Prayer only works if you're connected to the right power source, my friends, and that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus is where power comes from because he has the power, not you. So now you can see why Israel's religious men, like the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, why they couldn't do awesome things like miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick, bringing sight to the blind, like Jesus. They weren't connected to the power source. The object of their faith wasn't Jesus. That is why George failed to bring true moral reform to his life. They all looked at themselves in their own power and strength. And the object of their faith wasn't Jesus. Therefore, Israel lacked, and therefore George, he also lacked. For us, however, if Jesus is the object of your faith, then you might be wondering, well, why can't I say to this mountain, be moved, and then it be moved? You know, modern faith healers, folks who, um, who think by just having enough faith, everything can be done, they would answer your question by simply saying, you know what, that, that mountain's not moved because you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. Because if you had enough faith, you'd be healed of that disease. You wouldn't have that pain anymore. You'd have that Mercedes. Or you'd have that baby, right? Or you'd have that house or that spouse or that promotion or that prestigious job. The problem isn't God that they say. They say it's your lack of faith which hasn't moved that mountain or hasn't healed you, or brought you that car, or given you that child, or that house, that spouse, that promotion, or that job. The problem with this view of faith is that it makes God out to be a cosmic vending machine. If I only believe enough, say enough Hail Marys, go to small group enough, or go to church enough, or be good enough, then God, he's going to have to answer my prayer. I've got him. Done a good, I've done a lot of good stuff. I'm going to cash in now. The problem is, the Bible doesn't say God operates this way. So why can't I say to this mountain, be moved, and it be moved? If Jesus is the object of your faith, and that mountain isn't moved when you pray for it to be moved, you know what? It's because it's not God's will for that mountain to be moved. It's not the time or the place. And that's why. Sometimes, you know what? Those mountains that you pray for, if Jesus is the object of your faith, if you're sincere and you pray for those things to be moved, sometimes those prayers are answered. And it's because they're in accordance with God's will, not yours. And sometimes, 
God doesn't answer our prayers or he doesn't answer them quickly with a yes, that mountain be moved, whatever that may be in your life, because you doubt God, because there is a little bit lack of faith or, or insincerity. And sometimes maybe that is why. But it's all in accordance with God's will. He does what he pleases. You have to understand the Lord is not saying, if you just believe enough, you are always going to get X. Or if you just believe enough, you're always going to get Y. Or, or this is going to happen, whatever that may be that you're desiring. See, the Lord is speaking very clearly about that which is impossible in accordance with his will, not ours. Church prayer is the lifting up of our desires in accordance with the will of God. That is why when we pray for things, we should always pray, Lord, if it be your will. Because our will does not always match God's will. The Lord doesn't promise all the health and wealth that we could ask for, but he does promise to always be with us. The Lord doesn't promise he's a giant genie in the sky for whom we can simply have enough faith in to get anything out of him that we'd so desire. But he does promise to give us what we need in the times we need it. Because that is a faithful God who knows what we need and knows how to answer prayers that are in accordance with his will and that are powerful. No, this passage is designed to show that there is no task that is in harmony with God's will that is impossible for those who have faith in God and pray. And that is why some prayers are answered in powerful ways. And that is why some prayers are answered with a no or maybe a not yet, because it's dependent upon if it's God's will, not ours, because he knows best, not you and not me. The disciples need to know this, especially for the days to come, because Jesus, their king, had promised that he was coming to establish a kingdom that would never end, and the disciples were going to see their Lord nailed to a cross. So now at the time where they needed to be reminded that God's word is powerful and that it cannot be thwarted, and that Jesus is powerful, that he is strong, he provides another miracle and another powerful teaching about faith and prayer. And how time, timely is this? That Jesus would instruct his disciples to believe in himself and to believe in his words and to not doubt them no matter what. Church, it is God's word that we have today that lets us know the character of God. It is your Bibles. It is God's word that lets us know God's revealed will. It is God's word which tells of, of many wonderful stories of faith and answered prayer that are in accordance with his will. It is God's word that we need to know and to love if we want powerful prayer lives that can move mountains. Let me encourage you to read the Bible and get to know God's character, to get to know what pleases God, and pray that God's glory would shine through you and through your prayers. I don't mean to discourage you from praying big prayers and praying for things that you want. You should pray many, many times each day for big and small things, things that you want, things that you need, and things that you want to happen but for God's glory. But what I'm trying to emphasize is that we need to pray for God's glory, not ours.
That's the emphasis here. Don't be afraid to pray for big things that bring God's glory because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And church, when we are most satisfied in God, we desire desperately to see his glory displayed. And what joy it is when we see God move mountains and we say glory be to God because he has the power, not us. And one awesome way we see God's glory on display is praying for big things that only God can do, which bring him glory. So let me encourage you, pray big prayers. Pray mighty prayers that bring God the honor and God the glory. And you know what? Let him sift all the details and let him work it out in his time and in his ways. Let him move those mountains if it's in accordance with his will and trust that God knows what he's doing. Let God reveal his majesty to you and many others in his time and in his ways, church. You know that kid, though, we talked about at the beginning, that kid, George, who was so driven to make himself into something special by his own power and his own strength? Well, eventually, he got sick and tired of trying to reform himself, and as God would have it, at his lowest point, he was invited to a Bible study by a friend. And it was at that Bible study that he learned about the character of God, what pleased God, and most importantly, he learned about his own need for God. And God transformed George's heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh through the reading and preaching of God's word at that Bible study. And the one evening, December of 1826, George Mueller came to know Jesus as the object of his faith. Jesus was now Lord and sitting on the rightful throne of George Mueller's life. And because Jesus was the object of George Mueller's faith with whom he loved so much, George spent three to four hours each morning praying and reading God's word. And as God saw fit, he answered numerous prayers that brought him glory and that were according to his will. You see, George went from swindling money from friends and family to never asking for a penny for his own salary or for his multi-million dollar costing orphanages in Bristol, England. Through faith in Jesus and praying for God's glory to be displayed in George's life, George Mueller established 117 schools and he offered free education to over 120,000 orphans who are living in England without asking for a single penny from anyone. That's a change of heart. That's putting Jesus back on the throne where he deserves. George simply prayed for the needs of his family, his staff, and the orphans to be met by God so that others might see how good and how powerful God truly is. See, George wanted God's glory to be on display for all to see not his own. And that is why so many of his prayers were answered in amazing ways because he brought God glory and they were in accordance with God's will. Fruitfulness came from George's prayer life because he put Jesus on the throne and he put his faith in him. And he prayed, Lord, be it your will, not mine. Let me close by reading just a few of George Mueller's prayers. These prayers and answers come from his prayer journal. 
1862, it was discovered that one of the drains was blocked at the orphanage. Being some 11 feet underground, workmen were unable to find the blockage despite several attempts. But George prayed about this situation and the workmen at once found the site of the problem and glory be to God. In August 1877, while once crossing the Atlantic on the SS Sardinian, George's ship ran into a thick fog. And he explained to the captain that he needed to be in Quebec by the following afternoon. But the captain of the ship, Joseph E. Dutton, said that he was slowing the ship down for safety and Mueller's appointment would have to be missed. You see, the fog was just too thick that the ship could not get through safely. So what did Mueller do? He asked to use the chart room to pray for the lifting of the fog. And the captain followed him down, claiming it would be a waste of time to pray. After Mueller prayed that the Lord's will would be done, the captain started to pray. But Mueller stopped him, partly because the captain's unbelief, but mainly because Mueller believed that the prayer had already been answered. And when the two men went back to the bridge, they found the fog had already lifted. The captain became a Christian shortly afterwards, and George made his appointment the next day. On Tuesday in 1865, one of the orphanage's boilers stopped working and George needing to have it fixed immediately. Now this was a problem because the boiler was bricked up, and their weather was worsening each day, and the children needed heat. So what did George do? He prayed for two things. First, that the workers that he had hired would have the mind to work throughout the night, and secondly, that the weather would let up. The next day, before the work was to commence, a severe and a bitter north wind blew. But in the morning before the workmen arrived, a southerly wind began to blow, and the temperature outside was so mild that no fires were needed for the boiler to heat the orphanage. That evening, the foreman of the contracted company attended the site to see how he might speed things along, and the foreman instructed the men to report back first in the morning to come back and make a resumption of the work of the progress that they had made. But the team leader stated that they would prefer to work through the night, and the job was done at fixing the boiler within 30 hours. You see, church, that's powerful prayer. He wanted God's glory to be on display, and he prayed, Lord, that this would be done if it's your will. Roger Steer he wrote a great biography about the life of George Mueller. And in that biography, Steer quotes George saying this multiple times. When I am in need of anything, I fall on my knees and ask God that he would be pleased to give me what I need. And he puts it in the heart of someone or another to help me in accordance with his will. And glory be to God and to God alone. You see, church, the object of George Mueller's faith was Jesus, and he prayed for God's glory to be displayed, that God's glory would shine so mightily through him that others would praise his name. 
You see, George Mueller's faith in God was strengthened day by day as he spent countless hours praying and reading God's word. And it was knowing God and praying for God's glory that strengthened his own faith and so moved mountains that were in accordance with the will of God. And so I ask you this morning, who or what is the object of your faith? If someone were to write a biography about your life, could the readers easily discern the answer to this question? Who is the object of your faith? If Jesus, if Jesus is the object of your faith, let me just encourage you, pray often and pray big prayers and pray small prayers. But pray them that they would be done and in God's ways and on his time and by his strength and his power in accordance with his will. And let me tell you, church, you might see some awesome mountains being moved in your life because God's glory is on display, not yours. Let me tell you, pray that you won't regret it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are mighty and that you are powerful. Lord, you have the ability, the power, the strength to answer anything that we could possibly pray. But Lord, we pray that it would be your will would be done, not ours. Because you know what we need. You know what we want. You know what should be done. Lord, may we pray that your glory would shine so brightly through our lives that others would bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, I pray that we would, that we would pray big and mighty prayers that only you can do so that we might see your mighty hand, your glory on display here in this church and in this community. Lord, you are faithful and doing all that you want to do. Lord, you are faithful in providing all that we need. And Lord, you are faithful in giving us, Lord, what we need in the times that we need it. Lord, we thank you that you can move mountains and that you can do that through us. I pray that the object of our faith would be Jesus and that we would have faith in him and that we would go to him each and every day because you are the true power and the true source. Thank you, Lord, this morning for bringing your word to us. May it sing deep in our hearts, and may our faith be strengthened. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen.